So you go to him and he refuses it. Now, if he listens to you, you've won your brother. It doesn't go any farther. And the whole purpose of church discipline is to show concern for that brother and to win him back. It's not to get rid of him. It's not to read him out of the church. It's not to have a back to a revival. It's not to get rid of the troublemaker, but it's to keep that person within the church in the right way. So you try to win him. It's a, a restorative process. Now, notice what moves it on to the next stage. Verse 16. But if he won't listen to you, that's the operative phase, phrase. People say to me, how long do you keep working with a person? How many times do you talk with him? The answer is until, it's not a matter of how long or how many times, but the answer is until he refuses to hear you. You keep working until he says, in one way or another, hey, I'm not going to talk about this thing. The matter's closed. Or he slams the door. Or he hangs up the phone. Where he makes it clear, one way or another, that he has had it, it's not going any further. He will not listen to you. He's not willing to resolve it. And that becomes evident in some way or other he's not willing to be reconciled. All right, notice down in verse 17, just to skip one, if he refuses to listen to them. That's the operative phrase that moves it on again. And then later on in 17, if he refuses to listen to the church. All along... The operative phrase is when the person closes down any communication on the matter. Different words are used, but uh, they all mean the same thing. So, if he won't hear you one-on-one, then you take one or two others, it says. If he won't listen to you, take with you one or two others, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be confirmed. The pre- presumption is that this person, being as stubborn as he has already evidenced himself to be, is likely to go on being that way. Now, there's a hope that these one or two witnesses may be able to win him, and that's, of course, uh, indicated if he refuses to listen to them. They're trying to do it. They're trying to get the matter resolved with as few people involved as possible. But uh, they may have to become witnesses, he says, because this matter evidently is of some significance to this person uh, in a way that he's not willing to let go of it, and uh, it looks like it's it's possible it may move along. So you're not only going to need a couple people to do some counseling at this point, uh, to do some arbitrating at this point, or to to stand between you and do some mediating of some sort, But you may need some witnesses, and so you're going to need these people for whatever help they can give and whatever the outcome may be. Now, they do try, because they're talking to him, according to uh, verse 17, and he refuses to listen to them, or he may listen to them. If he listens to them, then it stops there. But you notice how all the way along here, it widens only because somebody refuses to hear and be reconciled. If the person's reconciled, that's the end of it, right there. If he's reconciled, it's the end of it there. If he's reconciled, it's the end of it there. If he's reconciled, it's the end of it there. But if he refuses to be reconciled, then it moves on. He won't hear. Now, so far, all this is informal. The elders haven't necessarily been brought in, though the one or two others might be elders. It doesn't say they have to be. 
doesn't say call the elders it doesn't say get any specific kind of brother but you would probably want to choose somebody here who uh, whom the other person respects and whom you respect if you can find somebody like that that would be the best kind of choice might not always be the pastor or the elder in the church it might be some brother who's very close to this individual who might have a, a salutary influence on him but at any rate it says take one or two others no more uh, definitive than that and then he hears them it stops but now if he refuses to listen to them verse 17 tell it to the church that moves it over from stage 3 to stage 4 I put a dotted line in there because the manner in which it is told to the church is of significance I don't think that he means here for you to stand up in the middle of some church service and say, uh, stop everything, I want to tell you about Joe. I don't think that's what he has in mind, that you tell everybody all at once that way. But uh, I think it's more that you go to the elders of the church, you tell them as representatives of Christ in telling the church, and they try to do something with the individual, and if he won't hear them, then it goes on to the entire church through the means that they choose to tell that church. Now, uh, if you'll notice in uh, 2 Thessalonians 3, Paul says in verse 14 that I read for you earlier, whoever doesn't obey what we say in this letter. That's why I say the elders or the leaders of the church, uh, that's A here. That's the first stage of this thing. And if he doesn't, then those elders, if he doesn't obey those elders or those leaders like Paul, then those leaders identify and mark out that person so that the whole church can counsel him, you see? The whole church now is counseling him. And as this thing widens, you see, more and more people are trying to get him reconciled. More and more people are working with him. More and more people are dealing with him. Now it has become a formal thing. Now it's before the church. Now the whole church knows about it. It's still not before the world. You don't get the newspaper and publish it in the newspaper. I wouldn't even uh, announce it publicly where the, world has to, where the world has a right to come in and hear about it, but I would either call a special meeting of the congregation and exclude others and announce it, or I would uh, do so in a written form to the members of the congregation only or something like that because it's only the congregation who is told at this point to know about it and the fifth stage is the world getting this information and not in the fourth stage. Now, in this fourth stage, you notice that he is still as a brother. Notice verse 15. Don't regard him as an enemy, but rather counsel him as a brother. Now, we usually talk about excommunication as being the fifth stage, it really isn't accurate to call the fifth stage excommunication. Excommunication takes place in the fourth stage while he's still as a brother. It's putting him out of the midst, as Paul calls it in 1 Corinthians, that uh, is stage five. But you're already not to mix with him, and according to 1 Corinthians 6, you're not even to eat with him in stage four when he's still treated as a brother he's a brother in sin he's a brother in rebellion 
But he's still to be considered a brother because not all the efforts of a whole church have been used in order to win him back and they're still counseling him and everybody now is working with him and trying to shame him, as it says here in verse 14, into repentance and into reconciliation. So they don't eat with him. That means certainly, if it means anything, the Lord's Supper, but I think it even means eating with him casually. That is, eating was a sign of fellowship. It was a sign of fellowship in the Lord's Supper, according to 1 Corinthians 11, and it was all partaking of one loaf, all being one body and so on. And it was, it's a sign of fellowship in, in general society in those days, even as it is in our day to a lesser extent, but to some extent. The table pulls everybody together. You kind of, you know, when somebody was at your table eating your salt, you had to, had to protect him back in those days. And uh, it was a sign of you were in fellowship with him. <coughs> this is saying you are not in full fellowship with him. And uh, what that would mean, practically speaking, I think would be something like this, when it says don't mingle, don't mix with him. I think it would mean that if Joe is the subject we're talking about, and uh, Joe uh, is in stage four where he's identified in Mark because he didn't hear what the elders had to say to him, and now the whole church is beginning to work with him. Uh, I think it means that if Joe calls up Bill on Monday, and he says, uh, Bill, hey, uh, I'd like to go golfing with you this Friday. Bill would have to say to him, Joe, I would love to go golfing with you the way we usually do, but you know I can't. There's something between us. Things just aren't the way they used to be. They're not right. There's this matter that you know is, is between you and the other members of the body. We can't just act as though nothing happened. That, to me, I think, is what, what he's talking about here. Don't just mix an ordinary conversation as though this were uh, uh, as though nothing had happened. Now, it goes on to say that uh, if he refuses to listen to the church, treat him like a Gentile and a tax collector. They were, as a heathen and a tax collector, they were on the outside. They were out of the church. The heathen never was in. tax collector, if he became one, was thrown out because he was a traitor. And so uh, now the whole world gets a shot at him. Hand him over to Satan, is what Paul said. For the destruction of the flesh. Big argument there about whether flesh means physical destruction in some way, such as you read about in First Corinthians where people are getting sick and dying and so on as the Lord disciplined them, or whether that means the, uh, the fleshly desires and so on, the sinful habituation of the flesh. But uh, regardless of which it is, he's now getting the whole world out there to work on him. And at every stage, even that stage, you see, the goal is for a larger group of people to work on this person. It keeps enlarging, widening, but only as he refuses. And that man in Second Corinthians, who was, or First Corinthians, who was thrown out according to Second Corinthians, when he got out there, found out what it was like not having his Christian friends what it was like out there in that world, what it was like to be handed over to Satan, what it was like to be in the world and not of the church, and he repented and he came back. And then we have that wonderful, so we might as well complete that, since we're doing the whole bit here, we might as well do it all the way. Then we have that wonderful statement about restoration and how it should take place in Second Corinthians 2. We read in verse 6, the punishment that the majority uh, inflicted 
on this person is sufficient. Some people always want to make somebody pay a little more. Always somebody in church is going to say, well now, don't you think that we better put him on a sort of uh, waiting list where we get him back into the church as a full citizen, a 100% citizen. Maybe we better keep him out of the choir for about six months or something, make sure this is for real, etc., etc., etc. No, none of that. Punishment of being handed over to Satan. Once a man is repented, comes back, it's sufficient. You don't add anything to it. So instead of going on with that, you should rather do three things. Here's three ways a person must be restored. Forgiving, that means you promise. Remember what forgiveness is? It's the promise not to bring the matter up to the person again. You bring it up to him, to others, or to yourself. We're to forgive the way God forgives according to Ephesians 4.32. It says, even as God for Christ's sake has forgiven you. That's how you're to forgive one another. How did God forgive us? It says in the scripture, when God forgives, he says, your sins and your iniquities will I remember against you no more. When God forgives, he goes on record and says, I won't bring it up against you anymore. That's what forgiveness is. It's a promise not to raise the matter again. Some people want to keep raising the matter. Well, now, you know, uh, uh, Joe's back with us, but uh, uh, maybe we better wait here before we let him get on a committee. You don't raise the matter again. Closed? It's closed. Forgiven? It's buried. It's gone? It's kaput. Okay? Forgive him. Second thing, assist him. Comfort or assist him. The word parakaleo is most broadly used in the New Testament to cover all kinds of things. And it means uh, basically to assist, to give whatever help another person needs. To come by him and to stand with him and give him whatever help he needs, whatever that may be. Counsel, uh, uh, wisdom, uh, uh, picking up a suitcase and carrying it, whatever he needs. Any kind of assistance that you can render. And this guy's going to need a lot of assistance to get reacclimated and reoriented back into the church of Jesus Christ and need all kinds of help. A lot of times, we don't give this person any help. We just say, good to have you back. Throw him in and uh, let him flounder. So that he won't be overwhelmed by too much pain. Now thirdly, therefore I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. That's not just any old word. That's a technical word. Kura'o. Kura'o means a formal readmission into some group or organization. It's a technical term. And what this means, and it's a legal term, it means to formally acknowledge him as a first-class citizen of the Church of Jesus Christ once again. When the prodigal returned home, they put the coat on him, robe on him, ring on his finger, he killed the fatted calf. They didn't say, wait six weeks and we might do that. I'll have a Q&A period all at the end, okay? So, if you got questions, write them down and hang on. I, I don't want to digress. If I digress, I may never come back. <laughs> so, hang on, okay? You're number one. Your first question. No, no, you're number two. Okay. I'm not going to go any further than two. Just remind me who's one and two when the Q&A period comes on the last day. So, here we have, then, a formal readmission. Now, it's important to keep records. It's important when the person has been dealt with and put out of the church that it be said so in the records of the book and some facts about it be given in the, the, the minutes of, the, of, the, uh, uh, of the, the church, the records of the church, uh, which the elders keep. And then when he is readmitted, it's important once again to actually say that the man was readmitted, the matter is closed, 
and the church is satisfied and there's no more uh, that anybody uh, is demanding of this individual whatsoever because pastors go and elders go and situations change and somebody brings this whole thing up years later on and uh, that man can't say, hey, wait a minute, the church dealt with that and it was closed and proved so by going to the records. And there's nobody else around who knew about it, but the records remain. And he's in jeopardy still. Need to somehow or other formally readmit him, and part of that, it seems to me, is to put something on the books to say that this matter is, is closed, the church is satisfied, and the matter is finished. It's not to be raised again. I know of a situation like that where it was not done, where a pastor is out of the ministry today because of that. And that's sad because he's a good man and he ought to continue ought to be in the church and yet the churches didn't operate properly toward him or toward this situation so so much for church discipline except to say you don't always start here it might start here with the offense it might start here at this point but this one started right here because it was notorious the whole church knew about it already people were being thrown out of the church I mean, obviously you start at whatever level where it is. And not only that, on top of it, this is a Titus 3.10 situation where you have a divisive man. So that needed quick work and only one or two confrontations at most if he doesn't come around. All right, I'll try to give you a little in church discipline there to help understand what's going on in this letter. John is about to come in that fourth stage to clean it all up. Got a little bit here of what was happening. Uh, in the resolution of conflict, the conflict was open, so it was dealt with openly. There was an attempt at, at resolution by reconciliation in the letter that John wrote. There was a refusal and aggravation of the conflict by Diotrephes' words when he babbled against John and told people that he refused to hear what John had to say and spoke against John with evil words and by his acts in refusing, first of all, to receive the brothers himself, and secondly, by his acts in throwing others out of the church who did. And so here we have this kind of a, a situation in which we see he will not hear John. So John is going to resolve this thing by definitive church discipline as he comes and finally deals with this man. When John comes, he's either going to repent and the whole matter will be resolved there. He's going to be out of the church and handed over to Satan. So that's sort of how things were going in this letter. Not all that great. Not all that great. Now, how soon? I'll count to five slowly. One, two. Everybody take a stand-up break who isn't reading this thing. Three, four, five. Okay, let's go on. Get it from the guy who stood up near you. Now you notice in this discussion, we read that he spoke evilly about John and John's companions. And he babbled. Interesting word there. Uh, the word uh, 
see where we've got this thing. He babbles about us. The word there is floron. Uh, uh, floron. Uh, where are we? Verse 10, aren't we? Here we go. Let's see. It's hard to see on here. This isn't printed too well. Oh, here. It's right here. He, uh, he babbles about us. It comes from a word that means bubbling water. And we have the same expression in English where we talk about a babbling brook, or babble and bubble. All those sounds are interrelated, you see. And this word means speaking nonsense, babbling. Whatever comes to his mind, he, he just lets it pour forth like water running in a brook. He runs off at the mouth, we say, very close to it. And uh, obviously the action that he took could only be justified by such nonsense as that because there was no way to really justify his own pride and ambition. Notice how his stance hardened. You see, when he stopped others, that was the first hardening of his stance. He refused to receive them, then he refused for anybody else to do so. Then he became schismatic. He divided the church. And that's how it usually goes in stages like that. You see the successive hardening of a man's heart against God and his authority. And this is a matter of authority. And that's one of the key things I want you to see in this book. In the book of 3 John, we're not just dealing with some kind of personal issue. This was the authority of Jesus Christ through John and through the church of Christ, which was writing to this man in an authoritative manner. Notice, he doesn't recognize the authority of the brothers, and he doesn't recognize our authority. Mentioned twice in verse 9 and in verse 10. There is authority. There is authority that ought to be exercised in counseling. Sometimes people get the idea that everybody who counsels, counsels on the same level. That's not true. There is a counseling that's informal in which every Christian is involved, or ought to be. Romans 15, 14 is clear about that. Colossians 3, 16 is also explicit on the subject. The one anothering things that we're to do for one another include counseling each other informally. But as a life calling, counseling is the task of the minister of the word, the elders of the church, and those who have been given authority to do so. There's a vast difference between pagan counseling out there in some marriage counseling clinic and the counseling of men who have been ordained by God into an office in the church which bears authority of Christ. And when those men speak according to Christ's word, they are to be heard. We read in Hebrews 13, 17, Obey those who have the rule over you. Obey those who have the rule over you. We don't like to hear that today. We don't like to hear that anybody has rule over us to begin with. Moreover, we certainly don't want to hear we're to obey somebody who's got the rule over us. Well, I thought the church was a democracy, somebody said. No, the church isn't a democracy. It's a theocracy. We've got a king over this church, and he's in charge. That's not me, and that's not any other human being on this earth. It's Jesus Christ, who's the king and head of his church. And he has given authority to his church. He gave greater authority to the apostles, 
But it's not the apostles alone who had that authority. John speaks of us and our authority. He was including the church, and he was showing that there was authority in the church down below the apostles themselves. Now, of course, Diotrephes' uh, action here was so aggravating because he was not only rejecting the normal authority of the church, but the very highest authority the church would ever have, the authority of apostles who were writing scripture in the name of God and who were inspired, who were writing inspired uh, material. But even though we're not inspired, and we who are members of the church of Jesus Christ ordained into that task, do not have that authority of an apostle, we have authority. And it is to be heeded. So when a man counsels with authority given by God, under that stricter judgment that will be given his because he is a teacher and does exercise authority and he must exercise it with great care because he will exercise it, Hebrews 13 says, as one who will have to give account for the souls over whom he rules. When a person in that position exercises authority, he is to be heard, unless what he says is absolutely against the word of God. Unless you can absolutely prove that what he says is unbiblical. Now, there was an interesting, interesting situation here about authority. Theotrophes was an authority too. Probably pastor of this church. Certainly at least a leading elder because he was able to throw people out of the church. He was exercising authority. <laughs> and here we had a conflict of authority. And Gaius was caught in the gears between this, you see. John saying, here are missionaries I'm sending, take them, receive them. Diotrephes, his pastor, is saying, don't you dare, I'll throw you out of the church. Conflict of authority. Is God in conflict with God in this situation? That's the question that arises. No. Not at all. How is a conflict of authority in the church to be resolved. Well, <clears throat> there you get into this in a dozen different counseling contexts, which we haven't time to get into today, but if you get the principles clear, you can take them back and apply them to any situation. So I'm working more in terms of principles out of this book than trying to apply it to lots of cases, but you may want to bring up some later, and then we'll try to take the principles and, and lay them on top of those cases. But uh, how do you resolve a case like that. Well, let's take the whole business of authority from God to begin with. God gave authority in four spheres, according to the Bible. He gave authority to the church, gave authority to the home, gave authority to the state, and he gave authority to business. Those are the four submission authority areas that are mentioned in the New Testament. Now, all other authority has to be subsumed underneath of those four authority areas. And the authority given to one is not the authority given to the other. Though they all come from God, each has its own sphere of authority and its own uh, rights and, and privileges. For example, the church shouldn't execute people the way that the government is required to. Neither should individuals strap on a, uh, a, a belt and uh, strap around the leg and go out as bounty hunters for uh, people who have done wrong. No individuals do that. That's the state's job. That's its authority, and nobody else has that authority. The church hasn't got that authority. The home hasn't got that authority. The individual hasn't got that authority. Uh, nobody else has that authority. Only the state has the authority to do that. On the other hand, the state has no authority to either proclaim or to forbid the preaching of the gospel. Uh, the state. 
And in the New Testament, we see a conflict of authority in the book of Acts between the state and the church. The state said, stop preaching. We forbid you to preach in that man's name. What did these preachers do? Here is the state. God had given authority to the state. God had given authority to the church. The church said, go preach. The state said, don't preach. Both authorities from God? Yeah, each had an authority from God, but listen to how the church resolved it. We must obey God rather than men. They were saying that the state had gone beyond the authority that God gave to it and had transgressed into the area of the church's authority and was arrogating that authority to itself when it had no right to do so. It wasn't the business of the state to tell the church either to preach or not to preach. God gave the state no such authority. And as a general principle about authority on the whole, God never gives anybody an authority to tell any Christian to sin. So a husband has no authority to tell his wife to go out and do... Uh, this week we have a, a setup arranged where we're going to swap wives in the motel and uh, we're all going to have a great time, so come along, honey, we're going to do this. Uh, no husband has a right to command his wife to sin. She says no. She says no. She doesn't have to create uh, creative alternatives or anything else. <laughs> she says no. Those guys in Acts didn't have any creative alternatives at all. He said, we must obey God rather than men. Now she doesn't do it in a nasty way. She says to her husband, unsaved husband, don't ask me to sin. I can't do it. And if he says, well, I do ask you, then I won't do it. God commands me not to sin. Now, uh, what about two authorities within the same sphere? That's what we've got here. You can see the principle as it crosses over from sphere to sphere. The government was never given the authority to do counseling. That's what this judge was saying, in effect. And that was a good statement on that point. Uh, but what about within the same sphere? What about a husband and a wife in the, the authority of the home? You know. And uh, one commanding a child to do something and the other forbidding. What does a child do? Besides Terry's hair, huh? You know, same kind of a problem we have here. Here is Gaius with John saying, take the missionaries, keep doing it. Here is Theotrophy saying, you do so and you'll stay out of this church. You're not getting back. That's where Gaius was when he got this letter. John's saying, keep it up. Defy, John is saying, defy the authority of Diotrephes. Notice that's what he's saying. Defy the authority of Diotrephes. The interesting thing here is that, and I told you we'd get to this and it would have importance, is that John says, keep doing it. What you did in the past was faithful, but keep on doing it. Don't quit. And do it even better than you ever did before. Do it as though they were worthy of God. And so, so you, it was God himself you were sending for on journey. In other words, the same principle holds. Theotrophes was not exercising the authority of God at that point. Because God never gave Theotrophes the authority to throw people out of the church for doing what the apostles said to do. Apostolic authority was clearly 
God's authority in an uncontaminated form. I haven't time to argue this, but I can argue that the sermons and the speeches in the book of Acts by the apostles were inspired. I would argue it if I had time. I do argue it when I teach preaching. And I believe that when the apostles spoke, they spoke uh, with authority that could not be questioned. And they spoke this way. And so John was speaking with that full apostolic authority. And today, we have apostolic authority only one place in the New Testament. We don't have the apostles around anymore, but we have what they said and what they taught. And so the answer is you're going to have to decide whether what the person is commanding you to do or what the other person is commanded to do is in line with apostolic authority or not. That's what it finally boils down to, whether it's in line with the New Testament or not. And that's what Gaius had to do. He had to make a decision between Theotrephes and John. So, that's where it was. And I think our time is exactly up at 3 o'clock. And I didn't give you much of a break, so we're going to quit. If you can't hear me in the back, please say so, because... Uh... Uh, John Bettler gave me a reading on how I was talking earlier, and he said he was standing about halfway down, and though I think that I'm just about yelling, and the people in the front must think that too, John said I sounded softer than he's ever heard me sound halfway down. So uh, this this feeling must just be great at soaking up sound. And we have too many haired people here as well. <clears throat> All right, let's 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 take a look at church discipline as we see it in a couple of other places to get something of this flavor of the background of this book which is so so critical to our thinking as, as counselors. And let me say as we begin to consider church discipline in more depth today uh, at the outset that you cannot do counseling without church discipline. Because church discipline is what draws the line between the church and the world. There's no other way to draw that line. There's no other way to determine who is under care and who is not under care. Who, for whom you are responsible and for whom you are not responsible. Who professes and who does not profess. They went out from us we read, in order that we, it might be made known that they were not of us. There is the distinction, you see. When the person is, when the person repudiates the church of Christ and the authority of Christ vested in his church, leaves the church, that is a sign, says the scripture, that that person was not of us. And uh, again, let him be to you as a heathen and a publican. That's how you know how to relate to that person. Now, in not every instance where somebody goes out, is it clear uh, all the way that that person's heart was unregenerate. It may be that somebody goes out and repents and returns. And First uh, John's not talking about that when it says, when they, they went out from us, that it might be made known that they were not of us, because uh, it's talking about those who went and stayed. And uh, in not every case where somebody is as a heathen and a publican, 
Uh, can we conclude uh, this person is a lost soul? This is an unregenerate person, someone who is not born again. Uh, we can't conclude that because we don't know his heart. He may repent and he may return if he is genuine uh, in his uh, Christianity but rebellious in his actions at the moment. But because being outside of the church is an indication of not being a part of God's people and therefore subject to God's authority and his word, that becomes the working model for how we have to deal with people in counseling. Now, let me tell you, Jesus Christ came to die on the cross for sinners. Will you believe that gospel? And he looks at you as though you're crazy, but you keep saying to him, will you believe the gospel? Let me explain the gospel to you. Because he needs to understand where he is and how the church must view him. And I know no better way of presenting that to him than to treat him the way you would treat an unbeliever because that's what the Bible tells us to do. And what you would treat, how you would treat an unbeliever is to present the gospel to him, right? So that's what you do, and the more you do that, the crazier he thinks you are, but the more the point keeps driving home to him that he is in the wrong place. You've got to make that point clear. And suppose he really isn't regenerate. He needs to hear the gospel, right? So either way, uh, that seems to me to be what we should do. Now let's look at a case of church discipline in the book of Numbers. I want to see how, show you how discipline was important in both the Old Testament and the New. We've looked at the New a good bit, but I want to show you just a little bit about it in the Old Testament. In the 16th chapter of Numbers, we have Korah's rebellion. Here was rebellion against established authority from God, the same kind of a situation we see in 3 John. Not the same circumstances, precisely. had nothing to do with... Uh, with uh, the matter of welcoming missionaries, obviously, but it was the same circumstance as far as authority and discipline goes. So let's look at this and see how God is consistent in his dealing with his people in both covenants, and he's consistent in these principles that we've been trying to set forth in Third John and elsewhere in the New Testament. I'm going to read some of this for you so that you get the story back in your mind again. Now Korah, the son of Izhar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, with Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and On, the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took action. And they rose up before Moses, together with some of the sons of Israel, 250 leaders of the congregation, chosen in the assembly, men of renown. Now, uh... <clears throat> you notice that here was leadership that was in rebellion against established authority. That's what we have in 3 John, leadership. Diotrephes was some kind of a leader, most likely the pastor of the church, since he had authority in that local situation that he abused in throwing people out of the church. And here we have leadership again, a much larger amount of leadership, but it's turning against rightful, biblically established authority in the church. And they assembled together against Moses and Aaron. Here are the rightly uh, established leaders. 
And so here again, we have that same kind of a spirit. I will go just so far with the gospel and with God's way, but no farther. For all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is in their midst. So why do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? Interesting question, they asked Moses and Aaron. You're above the people. Let's turn this church into a democracy. Let's have an equal vote for each man on every issue. Let's make the church of Jesus Christ something where all the people get together and nobody has any superior authority to anyone else in this church and let's all be one on the same level. That is not God's way. There is authority in his church. Christ is the king and head of his church. There's supreme authority. And he has given the keys of the kingdom to his people. He has said, Whatsoever you shall bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. By the way, that's a future perfect passage in the original. It's an assurance that what you're doing here is not just you acting, but I'm acting previously and I'm acting already in this matter, so you're just doing visibly what I have been doing invisibly in people's lives. You're just feeling outwardly what has been happening inwardly. So it's an assurance to go ahead and exercise discipline, that you're not alone in this, where two or three are gathered together exercising, and I'm in your midst, as it says in uh, Matthew 18. That passage, by the way, has nothing to do with small prayer meetings. It doesn't justify small prayer meetings, and it doesn't say where two or three people gather together, they'll get anything they want if they agree on something, the way a lot of people are distorting those verses today. What that is saying is that if two people or three who are the elders of a church are getting together to exercise church discipline, and they're exercising it according to my word, and I am in their midst working with them, that they are to move ahead and not be fearful to exercise that discipline because I'm working through that process with them. And whatever they bind shall have already been bind, and whatever they loose shall have been loose. And so uh, there is authority in the church, and it's Christ's authority, the authority of the king and the head of the church that comes down to his officers. There is such a thing as authority. And there is authority that is greater than the authority of the individual. There are people to be obeyed in the church, as it says in Hebrews 13, what we mentioned yesterday, obey those who have the rule over you. Now, the modern American person does not want to hear that kind of thing. He's very much like these people, Korah, and these people who said, let's have a democracy. Let's vote on it. Let's do this thing sociologically. We'll go around and we'll count noses, and uh, depending upon how many noses we get, you know, on what side of what, then we'll set our rules and our authority and the rest of it according to majority which rules. Not in Christ's church. Christ rules, and his servants are to exercise his rule as those appointed in his place to exercise that authority in the body of Christ in the church which goes so far that church discipline even is necessary at times putting people out of the church. Okay, so here was this problem. Why do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? Let the people decide. And I want to tell you something. Whenever the people decide, 
the people all being uh, sinners, whenever the people decide, you've got trouble. It's God who has to decide, not the people who decide. God who has to decide. So, when Moses heard this, he fell on his face. Here they were accusing Moses of something that Moses didn't even want to do in the first place. Moses didn't want to stand up there in front of that crowd and lead them and be this leader with all this authority above the other people. He didn't want that kind of position. He protested against it. When God called him, he said, Lord, you know I can't even talk. What do you want me to do that for? God said to him, Moses, you stop talking now. Shut up. Who is it that made man's mouth? If I made your mouth in the first place, then I can make that mouth move the way I want it to move in the second place. And uh, so he said, Moses, you're got, you've got a job. I chose you. You didn't choose to do this thing, and you're going to do it. Now, you're going to have to put up with Aaron uh, since you made this objection, but uh, you're going to do it. He didn't choose that task. Isaiah didn't choose his task of being a prophet. Uh, you remember the Lord came to him in the temple, and Jeremiah protested also. He said, I'm just a child. He didn't want to do that job either. And most of the servants of God have not gone into this thing, uh, into this ministry of Christ, or entered into this place of authority, uh, the true servants of Christ, uh, because they wanted that position. They have entered into that, sometimes kicking and screaming all the way. And at least with great hesitancy and humility, saying, Lord, who is sufficient for these things the way that Paul did? And of course, what Paul uh, said was that God came to him and said, I'm the one who will make you, he cannot, I will make you sufficient, able to carry on the work to which I've called you. I didn't call you because you were, uh, you were able, I called you, and therefore I will enable you. That's the way God works. So, they're accusing Moses of something here that God really did. God put Moses and Aaron in that position. Moses didn't put himself there. He went only extremely reluctantly. So he fell on his face. He said, Lord, what am I going to do? And he spoke to Korah and all his company saying, all right, if this has come to a showdown, it's come to a showdown. We're going to let God act in this matter. Tomorrow morning, the Lord will show who is his. In other words, he said, the Lord's going to have to decide this matter. You won't listen to me. I'm certainly not going to listen to you because I've got to do what God said. Let's let God decide the matter. And he will show us his and who is holy and will bring him near to himself, even the one he will choose. You have gone far enough, you sons of Levi. Interesting. They said to Moses, you've gone far enough. We're not following you any further. Now you've gone too far. You want too much authority. You want to be the head of this whole business. Why not let all the people be equal? And Moses says, all right, God's going to decide this matter. You've gone far enough in your rebellion, in your protest. He throws the same words back at them. Now, <clears throat> it goes on. Then Moses said to Korah, Hear now, you sons of Levi. Is it not enough for you that the God of Israel has separated you from the rest of the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself? They had a privileged position. They were especially holy. They worked with the holy things of God to do the service of the tabernacle of the Lord and to stand before the congregation to minister to them as the word of God 
was ministered the priests and the Levites explained the word to people and they made it practical in their daily lives as people needed to understand how to implement the word of God and that he has brought you near Korah and all your brothers sons of Levi with you and are you seeking the priesthood also there are people who want to get more power who want to get ahead who want themselves to be in a position of authority which God has not chosen them to carry so this ambition same problem we have in third John manifesting itself in a little different context but this ambition is constantly a problem in the church of Christ Old or New Testament wherever you look at it therefore you and all your company are gathered together against the Lord now I want you to notice that because that is a critical statement they were against Moses and Aaron but Moses says you've gathered together against the Lord now that's authority that is what we mean in saying that authority is given to the elders of the church of Jesus Christ because when people stand against the elders of the church of Jesus Christ they stand against the Lord if those elders are exercising their functions properly according to God's word and that's authority to identify what the elders are doing in the New Testament picture with what God is doing and anybody who opposes the one is opposing God himself is authority powerful authority and you know we just do not have respect in America any longer for authority we don't know what authority means we don't like authority we have had since the 60s every kind of attack upon authority and in the generation before that the liberals attacked the scriptures which is the basis which are the basis for all other authority and so in this generation all authority is broken down if you don't have the authority of the word then the authority of government leaves the authority in the home leaves the authority in schools leaves any other authority must go back to the authority of the scriptures and so the liberals a generation or two ago tore away the foundations of all other authority in our society and we in the 60s and 70s and 80s have been experiencing the results of the authority of the word leaving so that every other authority would drain away we don't like authority but if the church of Jesus Christ is going to do its job of counseling each individual church must get to the place where it once again restores the authority of Christ and exercises church discipline in authority church discipline is an absolutely essential tool for counseling because when all else fails there must be something that finally ties up the package God leaves no loose ends there has to be a way of finalizing every situation and if it isn't finalized at an earlier stage by reconciliation or repentance or whatever it takes then church discipline is the one thing that finalizes it and brings peace to the body of Christ and apart from that you've got nothing but chaos confusion and heartache and unless there is power in the church to exercise authority over those who refuse to accept the word of God that church is weak 
And that church has little to say to its members with force because it's the force of church discipline that you need to have behind all your preaching and all your counseling. That's essential, that church discipline stand behind your counseling as the last stage, the last resort. It's just like a child. You may try to discipline that child in any number of ways. And I don't say you always should run first for the rod. Maybe there is a word that could be spoken. The rod and reproof, you see, Proverbs says. Maybe an encouragement can be given. Maybe an explanation can come. And all these things may do the job. But when it comes down to it, if all else fails, Proverbs says, don't forget the rod. There's got to be a final way of settling the issue. You can't let things hang. God is a father as well as a king over his church. And he is one who exercises discipline, he tells us in the book of Hebrews. And he says all discipline is painful for the moment. But he says discipline brings the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Discipline leads to righteousness, which when you bite into that fruit of righteousness, tastes like peace. Now you see, peace in the church, peace among God's people will never come apart from discipline. Most people think you can have peace at any cost other than discipline. But peace comes only through discipline, just as it does in a home, so it does in the church, just, just as it does in a government. And when a government refuses to enforce its laws, when a government refuses to punish the criminals in its society, does that society have peace? No, it has chaos. But when a government exercises its authority rightfully and refuses to allow criminals to dictate the culture that we will live in, then that government brings peace to its citizenry. And the same is true in the church. There is government, and there is authority in that government, and peace comes to God's church only when we have it. Now, I'm trying to lay that foundation because it's so critical and so few churches do exercise church discipline. Let's go on in this. Therefore, you and all your company are gathered together against the Lord. But as for Aaron, who is he that you grumble against him? Don't blame him. He's only doing what I say. Then Moses sent the summons to Dathan and to Byram, the sons of Eliab. But they said, we will not come up. Here they're defying Moses' authority. Is it not enough that you have brought us up out of a land flowing with milk and honey to have us die in the wilderness? Would you also lord it over us? There it comes again. They just will not accept the authority of the leadership in the church. Just like Theotrephes, he refused to accept the authority of the leadership of the Apostle John in the church. Indeed, you have not brought us up into a land flowing with milk and honey. Nor have you given us an inheritance of fields and vineyards. Would you put out the eyes of these men? We will not come up. Sounds like the atrophies. No, I'm not going to pay attention to what you say. Same attitude. Same spirit. Same way of going. 
Then Moses became very angry and said to the Lord, Do not regard their offering. I have not taken a single donkey from them, nor have I done harm to any of them. And Moses said to Korah, You and all your company be present before the Lord tomorrow, both you and they along with Aaron. And each of you take his fire pan and put incense on it, and each of you bring his censer before the Lord, 250 fire pans. And also you and Aaron shall each bring his fire pan. So they each took his own censer and put fire on it, laid incense on it, and they stood at the doorway of a tent of meeting with Moses and Aaron. Thus Korah assembled all the congregation against them at the doorway of a tent of meeting. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the congregation. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Separate yourselves from among this congregation that I may consume them instantly. But they fell on their faces and said, O God, thou God of spirits of all flesh, when one man sins, will you be angry with the entire congregation? Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the congregation, saying, Get back from around the dwellings of Korah, Jason, and Abiram. In other words, God was going to destroy the whole business. But Moses and Aaron interceded. Then God said, all right, I'll let them choose. You may choose to stay with these rebellious people, or they may choose to separate from them. The same picture took place in that church. Here was rebellious theotrophies misusing church discipline, throwing people out of the church who refused to disobey the word of God given through his apostle to entertain those missionaries. And the church was separated. Church discipline can even separate a church. Church discipline can wrongly separate it. And on the other hand, it can rightly separate it. Misused, it can separate it. And used properly, it can separate it. Think about all the ins and outs of that. But it often comes to a matter of choice. Whose discipline will I listen to? Whose authority will I hear? You see, these people were arrogating authority to themselves they didn't have from God. But they were deceiving people into thinking that that authority was right. They were flattering them and saying, huh, Moses is lording it over you. Moses has put himself in a place where he's above all of the rest of us. Let's all be equal. They were giving this kind of, of larding it on in flattery to the people, and the people were following them. God says through Moses, speak to them, saying, Get back from around that dwelling. Then Moses arose and went to Dathan and Byram with the elders of Israel following him. And he spoke to the congregation, saying, Depart now from the tents of these wicked men and touch nothing that belongs to them lest you be swept away in all their sins. He warns. Church discipline brings the note of warning before the note of judgment, always. So they got back. The people were scared. They began to wonder about this. They, be, they knew that this God who had done miracles before could once again speak from heaven in a miraculous way. So the people got back from the dwellings of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, and Dathan and Abiram came out and stood at the doorway of their tents, 
along with their wives and their sons and their little ones. What happens to families in times of such situations is more than I want to get into today, but it's a study in and of itself. And Moses said, By this you shall know that the Lord has set me to do all these deeds, for this is not my doing. See, they're saying, Moses and Aaron, you've arrogated power to yourself. You want to lord it over us. You've gone too far. Moses said, I didn't get myself into any of this. I didn't call myself. It was God who called me, and none of this is my doing. You're against God, not against me. And if these men die the death of all men, or if they suffer the fate of all men, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord brings about an entirely new thing, and the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that is theirs, and they descend alive into Sheol, then you will understand that these men have spurned the Lord. And it came about, as he finished speaking all these words, that the ground that was under them split open, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up in their households. There's that note again that I won't comment on, but don't miss it. And all the men who belonged to Korah with their possessions. So they and all that belonged to them went down alive to Sheol, and the earth closed over them, and they perished from the midst of the assembly. And all Israel who were around them fled at their outcry, for they said, The earth may swallow us up. Fire also came forth from the Lord and consumed the 250 men who were offering the incense. Rebellion creates judgment. Rebellion leads to judgment. And judgment is never pretty. It's never pleasant. It's never nice. Church discipline is there to keep the judgment from coming. It's to keep people from falling under the fire of God. It's to keep the ground from opening up and swallowing people, literally or otherwise. You see, that's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11. Listen to how he deals with the problems at the Lord's table where those people were sinning greedily and getting drunk and so on. He says, let a, verse 28, let a person examine himself. Let him do it. Don't let me have to examine him. Let him examine himself. And out of that, let him eat the bread and drink the cup. Whoever drinks, eats and drinks without discerning the body. He only sees food on the table. He doesn't understand what this is all about or care. All he cares about is getting his stomach filled. He eats and drinks to his own judgment. There's a warning. It's because of this that many of you are weak and sick and a number sleep. There's nothing magical in the Lord's Supper that created those weaknesses. God was judging them by bringing weakness and death. Sleeping there is that euphemism that the New Testament uses for the body being laid in the koine perion, the cemetery, the sleeping place, as the uh, cemetery, word cemetery means, where the body sleeps. Now notice verse 31 and 32. Now if we carefully judged ourselves, we wouldn't be judged. But when the Lord judges us, he disciplines us so that we shall not be condemned along with the world. God disciplines his people. But he says, discipline yourselves. Heed the warning. Listen to the informal discipline that others bring into your life. Listen to the church when it tells you things are wrong. 
Listen. 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 In Matthew 18, 15 following, the operative phrase is, if they will not listen. If they will not hear. Then it moves on to the next stage of discipline. God says, listen. So the judgment won't have to fall. I'll just mention one other passage that might be of some interest in the Old Testament. Just point out a couple things in Exodus 32. Here is the story of the golden calf. The rebellion against God when Moses is up in the mount getting the commandments of God. And here is the, the here are the people down worshipping, supposedly worshipping Jehovah through a golden calf with all of their sinful adultery uh, and the rest of it. And uh, in this, we might begin uh, uh, with verse 32, uh, with verse 1 of chapter 32. Now, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people assembled about Aaron and said to him, Come make us a God who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't even know what's become of him. Moses had been so long in the mountains. They said, he's probably gone. Let's, let's set this thing up on our own. Now, Aaron listens to the people rather than to God. And if there is anything that destroys church discipline in the church, it's fearing the people, listening to the people, rather than listening to the word of our God and following closely what the scriptures teach us that we should do as leaders in the church. So Aaron says to them, okay, tear off the golden rings which are in the ears of your wife, your son, and your daughters, and bring them to me. Then all the people tore off the gold rings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. By the way, the fellows had the rings in their ears too, not just the gals, if you notice. That's kind of interesting. It's not a modern phenomenon. <laughs> And he took this from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool, carving tool, made it into a molten calf, and they, sa and they said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Now, if you had asked them, they would have said, Oh, no, this isn't anything but Jehovah. It's just a visible representation of him. We're still worshiping Jehovah. But you can't mix pagan ideas with the worship of the true God. And that's what they were doing. And Moses was in the very mount getting a commandment not to make any graven images. And here they are down here doing the very thing that Moses is getting a commandment at that very moment not to do. And so they didn't wait to hear what God had to say and how God wanted this thing carried on. Now when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to Jehovah. See, they're worshiping Jehovah through the golden calf, they tell you. So the next day they rose early and offered burnt offerings, brought peace offerings. The people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. That was uh, not a nice kind of play. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down at once, for your people whom you brought up from the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have quickly turned aside from the way which I commanded them. They have made for themselves a molten calf and have worshipped it, have sacrificed to it, and said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. 
And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, they are an obstinate people. Now then, let me alone that my anger may burn against them, and that I may destroy them, and I make, I will make of you a great nation. There isn't a pastor in the room who hasn't said about his congregation, they are an obstinate people. Is there one? Let me see. You, you haven't said that about your congregation. Well, you've got a remarkable congregation or a brand new one. <laughs> What's that? Oh. Okay, yours are all little tackers or something, huh? They're not obstinate? Well, that's interesting, too. Then Moses entreated the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your anger burn against your people whom you have brought out from the land of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians speak, saying, with evil intent he brought them out and so on? And then he calls upon them to remember the covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. And the Lord says, okay, I'll do that. And then Moses comes down and Joshua and so on hears the sound of the people and he says to Moses, that's the sound of war in the camp. And uh, he says, no, it's not the sound of triumph. It's not the sound of defeat. There's something wrong. It doesn't sound like a battle, either uh, one being won or one being lost. That's the sound of singing, I hear, he says. What on earth is going on? And I don't think they were singing hymns either at that point. Must have been singing some kind of ribald songs that had to do with their rising up to play. Uh, it was probably rock. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> It came about, as soon as Moses came near the camp, that he saw the calf and the dancing, and Moses' anger burned, and he threw the tablets from his hand, shattered them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf which they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it over the surface of the water and made the sons of Israel to drink it. You want it, then drink it. <laughs> then Moses said to Aaron, What did the people do to you? that you have brought such a great sin upon them. Get those words. What did the people do to you that you have brought such great sin upon them? How could you have allowed them to influence you so that you, the leader of those people, the one whom I left responsible when I went to meet with the Lord on the mountain, how could you let those people so influence you that you would go along with and guide them into such great sin? What's he saying? He's saying the people sin. He's holding them responsible. He's sorting out their responsibilities. He's not saying it's all Aaron's fault. But he's saying, Aaron, you have sinned in leading them and, give, and giving them the kind of a, a power and ability to go ahead and run roughshod over you and do what you knew was wrong. You've gone along with those people, and it's your fault and it's their fault. He hits the leaders, and he hits the people, but he says the leader was the one who was responsible for bringing the people to the place where they sinned. Leadership, having to do with church discipline, has an awful lot to do with what happens to the people of God, whether they sin and go God's way or not. And we have such fightful leadership in our churches today, so weak, so miserably powerless that there is so little discipline and there is so much sin as a result. So much sin because there's so little discipline over the people by the leaders. They are intimidated by the people. They are intimidated to encourage them and tell them ways in which they can sin as Moses did, uh, as Aaron did. 
Now, and Aaron said, Do not let the anger of my Lord burn. You know the people yourself. So how do you do, do anything with a group of people like this? That's what every pastor tells you. <laughs> every pastor I know, when you say to him, Got church discipline in your church? He says, Well, hey, you know, you know my church. I mean, well, how on earth are we ever going to get church discipline with a group of people like that? God holds you responsible. Now, I don't say the first two days you're there that you can get it all turned around, but if you've been there for two years and you haven't had these issues dealt with adequately, and you don't have even the beginnings of church discipline in your church, very accurate. Sing again, huh? How's that? All right? All right. Now, uh, next two verses are of great significance. And I said to them, who has any gold, let them tear it off. So they gave it to me. I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. <laughs> oh, beautiful. He carved it. Remember, he took the grave and tool and carved it? But the way he represents it now, it just kind of happened, you know. I threw this stuff in the fire, and what could I do? Out it walked. <laughs> I was trying to get rid of all that junk, threw it into the fire. Now, he's accurate. He did melt it down in the fire, and it did come out of that fire. But he sort of plays down his own role plays down his own agency. You see, he, he skips a certain stage in the process where he was deeply involved. And that's our tendency always, to skip that stage of involvement and say, the people wanted it, here it is, the fire produced it. And I don't care what the fire is, whether it's the fire of circumstances or whether it's the fire of pressures on you or the fire of the culture around you or the fire of whatever it is, it never produces sin in the leader. It never produces sin in the leader because he's responsible for carving the calf when he picks up the grave and the tool that graves it or carves it. Now, what I'm saying is, is that we've got to recognize and not excuse ourselves, recognize our agency in the failure for church discipline. And if there's going to be any change, and there's going to be anybody on the spot when it comes to church discipline, it's got to be us. It's got to be us. And that's what he's talking about here. Now look at verse 25. We know he's talking about discipline because he sees, he says, now, when Moses saw that the people were out of control, what is that? That's an undisciplined congregation of people. People who are out of control. It means that they were, they had broken loose. That's what the word means. For Aaron had let them get out of control to be a derision among their enemies. We won't talk about what the lack of church discipline because of the failure of the leadership in the church does to the name of Christ in, among the heathen. We won't mention the fact that having a drunk on the roll of your church whom the whole community knows is a drunk 
does to the witness of the Church of Jesus Christ in the community and 16 other such examples as that. But just this note refers to all that sort of thing. Now, I'm not saying that a drunk can't be reclaimed, not saying you've got to throw him out, not saying that he can't repent and be restored or even become an elder someday again, but uh, allowed to go on in his drinking, his drunkenness, allowed to go on this way undisciplined, allowed to be an elder while undisciplined. What a terrible thing. I want to tell you, just I've I got to say something about it. I wasn't going to get on that at all. I just want to mention it, but I'm going to say something anyway. When I was working in the University of Illinois on that fellowship uh, in psychology, I worked with Hobart Maurer for a summer. And Maurer had been made an elder in the Presbyterian Church in Champaign, Illinois. Now, it was a liberal church. And he told us this. He said one day... As I sat there in an, a meeting of elders, he said, uh, I realized these guys don't believe anything. And he said, I don't believe anything either. And he said, this is a farce for me to be an elder. So he said, the next meeting, after I got my act together on this, he said, I went in there and I said to them, you guys don't believe anything. You don't belong in this church as elders. Maybe you don't even belong in this church. And I don't believe any more than the rest of you. But I've got enough integrity to tell you this and also to hand in my resignation, not only from the session, the elder board, but also from the church. And Allie West. And here's a man who was willing enough to find out what Christianity might be like to get into that church deeply enough to even become an elder. But because there was no discipline, no doctrine, no anything, he walked away from the Church of Jesus Christ and ultimately committed suicide. Well, all kinds of things can happen like that. When Moses thought the people were out of control, for Aaron had let them get out of control to be a derision among their enemies, then... Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the sons of Levi came together to him. And then he sent them out to slay the rest of them that didn't come. The division came again. You see, awful consequences come from failure to discipline. And it ends up with judgment, the slaying of these people, and the dividing of Christ's church. Do you know why we have a Protestant church today? Because there was no discipline in the church. And when Martin Luther went down to Rome and saw the corruption that was allowed, he began to rethink all the stuff. And that's why all the false doctrine came in to begin with that overlaid the truth because there was no discipline. Take anybody into the church with all the background or all the rest of it. It's tragic. That's the same picture in the Protestant church today as a whole. And in many cases in evangelical Protestantism today because there's no discipline. And where there's no discipline, the people will be divided and judgment will fall. 
We're not being cruel when we insist on church discipline. We are being kind. We're trying to withhold that judgment, to keep it from falling. We are trying to keep the church from being divided. People think that if they exercise church discipline, they'll divide the church. Sure, maybe a couple people will But listen, in the long run, that's what preserves and unifies the church and keeps the judgment of God from falling.